good evening, you magnificent, magnificent geeky people. Hello and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. And if I sound enthused, it's because, yes, this is Reggie and I am here again with another hour of geeky stuff. Not news, views and reviews, though, this week, because I don't know what's happening. As I record this, we're some time away from whenever this will eventually drop, because this is me from the past. I'm time travelling. Present day me is nowhere near a microphone. Present day me is away on holiday. I'm not entirely sure where present day me is because when I recorded this, we hadn't actually planned the holiday that this is covering for. I don't even know when this is going out as I record this. It's strangely liberating. I don't have to be concerned with anything that's going on. As I sit here right now, I can do literally anything I like and it's future me that's got to deal with it. The power. It might just go to my head. But we have to be sensible. And since future me will be me eventually, I guess I need to make future me's life a little bit less complicated. So I'm not going to do anything weird. What I am going to do, though, is talk to you about something that I'm actually genuinely completely fascinated by, and which I think you might be fascinated by too. Now, you will have heard, I am sure, that the moon landings were a hoax. And because you're listening to this, I know that you are a sensible person. And therefore, I have no doubt whatsoever that whenever you hear people telling you that the moon landings were faked, and the whole thing was a massive hoax, you laugh in the faces of whoever is daft enough to tell you that. Because, of course, there was no moon hoax. Of course, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and all of the people that followed them on Apollo 12 and Apollo 14 and Apollo 15 and Apollo 16 and even Apollo 17, all of those people, all of them went there, all of them walked, and in a couple of cases, drove. And on one occasion played golf and on several occasions fell over. And then one day in December 1972, we decided that frankly enough was enough and we never went there again. Hopefully we'll be back again in a few years, but honestly, I'm not 100% confident and I will believe it when I see it. No, the moon landings definitely happened, but that does not mean that there was no great moon hoax because there was it just wasn't the one that people bang on about on reddit and twitter no no this was a real hoax that actually happened and apparently although we'll talk about how much it actually took people in but apparently actually took people in i am of course talking about the great moon hoax of 1835 so cast your mind back just a little bit to the year 1835 To put it in context, this was the year when, on the 7th of January, HMS Beagle, carrying Charles Darwin, first dropped anchor off the Cronus Archipelago. It was the year when the United States government had exactly zero debt for the first and only time in the history of that great nation. It is the year when the slaves in Salvador da Bahia in Brazil revolted, an event which was instrumental in starting the chain of events that ended slavery in Brazil 50 years later. It was the year that the city of Melbourne was founded in Australia. It was the year that Charles Darwin made it to the Galapagos. And it was the year in which somebody at the New York Sun was stuck for a story. There are all kinds of things that a journalist can do when they have nothing to put in the paper. Favourite amongst them, used to be at least, going out and finding something that was actually happening and reporting on it. But in common with many journalists of the modern era, this journalist from the New York Sun had better things to do than their actual job. And so, in the tradition of never letting the facts get in the way of a good story, this journalist 
from the New York Sun sat back in their chair and proceeded to make something up. Not just once, but six times. Although I think probably the latter five can be chalked up to the fact that the first one proved so popular. The whole thing starts on August the 25th, 1835, when the first of a series of six articles announcing the alleged discovery of life on Earth's moon appeared in the New York Sun. Now, these articles were claiming to be reprinted from the Edinburgh Journal of Science. So the New York Sun was not claiming to have scooped everybody with this information. The New York Sun was claiming that it had got its information from a presumably respected scientific journal. Now, you must understand this is 1835. There was no Google. You could not simply check to see whether there was an Edinburgh Journal of Science and whether if there was such a creation, it had ever published articles about life on the moon. You simply couldn't easily check that. Besides, this was a more innocent age. We may be talking here about the New York Sun, but the British Sun newspaper didn't exist yet. So people were kind of used to the idea that newspapers would tell them something at least approaching the truth. And in any case, it all sounded kind of plausible. The byline was Dr. Andrew Grant, who was described as a colleague of Sir John Herschel, who was an incredibly famous astronomer of the day. I mean, the closest I can think of now is, is I was going to say, if a newspaper claimed to be quoting Brian Cox, but actually it's more like quoting Stephen Hawking. I mean, that's the kind of level of fame and respect that Sir John Herschel was commanding in 1835. He was the guy as far as global astronomy went. And it was the case that the previous year, in January 1834, Herschel had gone to Cape Town in South Africa and set up an observatory there with a very powerful new telescope because he wanted to look at the southern sky, which of course you cannot see from the northern hemisphere because, you know, the planet's in the way. Now, Grant described Herschel having made discoveries of evidence of life forms on the moon, including unicorns, two-legged beavers, and furry winged humanoids who resembled bats. There was also quite detailed and I might even say vivid description of the geography of the moon's surface. The newspaper reported that uh, the surface was littered with enormous craters, but also huge crystals of amethyst, lush vegetation, and gurgling, roaring, rushing rivers of fresh, clean water. And as I said, the clever thing here was not the claims, which are, I think we can all agree, rather outlandish, but claiming to be reporting something that somebody else who actually had some authority actually said is a stroke of genius because it doesn't just make you more believable. I mean, why would you lie about somebody else having figured out something amazing? But also it gives you plausible deniability. It's the, well, that's what we were told, defence. And people should have been a little sceptical, I think. The New York Sun was a relatively new newspaper. Uh, it had been founded in 1833 and was one of a number of newspapers that were collectively known as the Penny Press. Uh, the, the tabloids of their day, really. Uh, they were designed to appeal to a wider audience. They were fairly cheap and had a much more approachable narrative journalistic style. Whilst they were still marketed as news and not entertainment, they were undoubtedly entertaining. Certainly much more entertaining than the more sober broadsheet newspapers that had previously been available in the city. But then, as now, being a newspaper was a cutthroat business. 
you lived and died by your daily sales. And so competition for good stories was pretty fierce. And I guess that might have been one of the motivations for going along with the hoax. Because from the very first day that a Moon hoax article was released in the New York Sun, the sales of the newspaper went through the roof. Readers were hugely excited by these revelations. And as people excitedly told their friends about the this news in the New York Sun, the sales of the paper continued to rise. And honestly, that's what the paper wanted. Of course, it was all utter, utter bunk. There had been an Edinburgh Journal of Science, but it had ceased publication literally years before the Great Moon hoax was perpetrated. And there had never been a Dr. Andrew Grant. He was completely made up too. In fact, the articles were most likely written by a guy called Richard Adams Locke, who was a Cambridge University educated Sun reporter. And he apparently intended the articles as a satire. Uh, he was poking fun at the serious speculation that there had been for some time at that point about extraterrestrial life. Um, there was a particular guy, a reverend, uh, Reverend Thomas Dick, who was a very popular science writer of the time. And he had made the claim that the moon by itself had 4.2 billion inhabitants, which I think is greater than the population of the Earth at that point. And, you know, there was all kinds of speculation about little green men on Mars, uh, about life on Venus, life on Jupiter. It was very much in the zeitgeist. New astronomical discoveries were being made all the time. And people were frankly getting a little bit excited about the whole thing. Um, this might have been connected to the fact that you know, most of the globe at this point had been explored, at least by Westerners, and people were looking to new frontiers. I, I don't think it's particularly a coincidence that this particular hoax was perpetrated in New York in 1835. The time of the great Western frontier was coming to an end. The idea that sort of European immigrants could arrive in New York and then go west, young man, that was coming to an end now. You know, it, it was clear that the, the frontier had been reached and exceeded and there was no more land to find here. I don't think anybody was at that point still concerned about the people who already lived on that land that was allegedly being discovered. I think they were much more concerned that there was no more. And that enthusiasm for exploration hadn't gone away. And so obviously speculation began to, to naturally turn to the only place humans hadn't been yet. The final frontier, if you like. I do think it's telling that Richard Adams Locke, if indeed it was him that wrote these articles, didn't expect people to believe them. In much the same way that not you know, around about 100 years later, Orson Welles was mildly surprised that anybody had taken at face value the adaptation he did of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, Worlds, in which he presented like news broadcasts and you know, sort of com you know, reporting on a Martian invasion of Earth. I mean, actually, history suggests that the popular myth that you know, sort of thousands of people were taken in by this is actually nonsense. The vast, overwhelming majority of people recognised it for what it was. And it was, in fact, stated on air that this is an entertainment programme. So I don't think that many people were taken in by HG Wells. I'm not sure how many people were taken in by the Great Moon Hoax either, really. Uh, were people reading it as satire? Were people believing it? I suspect people were doing what, what we still do with science stories, which is sort of thinking, well, that's amazing if that's true, but taking it with a pinch of salt is, I suspect, what was happening. But it is 
fair to say that some people were very definitely taken in. As the New York Sun continued to report on Herschel's discoveries, or Herschel's alleged discoveries, getting more and more far-fetched, more and more lurid, actually describing Herschel being able to see individuals conducting business on the surface of the moon. I'm not going to lie to you. The telescope that Herschel constructed in South Africa was pretty impressive for the time and unbelievably powerful for the time, but it wasn't that good. The point, though, is that people in 1835 were living in an age of wonders. They were living in an age when new inventions were turning up every other day and things that would just a couple of years earlier have seemed miraculous were becoming commonplace. And rather crucially, that had never happened before. I mean, we are actually living in a similar age now as, you know, our technology continues to advance at a ridiculous pace. I mean, just something as as simple as ChatGPT is now regarded as an everyday thing. And yet it didn't exist a year ago. And look at what it can do that machines couldn't do a year ago. And we're just accepting of it. But we're less amazable now because there isn't a human being alive that hasn't lived in an age of such rapid technological progress. But in 1835, well, new technology was kind of a new thing. There had been continual developments in existing technologies. You know, people kept building a better mousetrap or more prosaically, designing a slightly more comfortable horse-drawn carriage. But actual new technologies, they were unusual back then. So if somebody told you that, oh, yeah, they've got a telescope now that can see the life on the surface of the moon, why would you doubt it? You'd have to be a real cynic, in fact. Which is why we should probably look reasonably kindly on the committee from Yale University, a committee of scientists, no less, who travelled to New York wanting to see the original Edinburgh Journal articles. And I think it's fair to say that the New York Sun employees had a little bit of fun at their expense, uh, sending them back and forth between the printing office and the editorial office, and then back to the printing office, then back to the editorial office, um, possibly trying to discourage them and make them go away. As, as I say, more likely chuckling on behind their backs at them. But the record does state that the scientists went back to their university still unaware that they had been fooled. They were just frustrated that they couldn't find the source articles. And while it's tempting to, you know, point at the New Yorkers themselves and laugh a little bit, say, ha ha, foolish Americans, imagine falling for something as whack as that. Well, do you know what? Everyone else was fooled too. The reports were picked up by international papers and reprinted and re-reported until eventually they reached a point where on September the 16th, 1835, the Sun admitted that the articles had, in fact, been a hoax. And You can tell it was 1835 and not 2023 because almost everyone thought it was at the very least quite amusing. Can you imagine what would happen now 
if a modern newspaper perpetrated a hoax of that kind. I, mean, I know the Sunday Sport claimed to have found a Lancaster bomber on the moon, but the Sunday Sport was never intended to be taken seriously and was clearly a joke newspaper from the beginning. The New York Sun was not. The New York Sun was a newspaper, an actual newspaper that reported actual news. And I suspect that if any of the tabloids reported that kind of hoax now, they would be hounded off the newsstands within weeks, which is vaguely annoying when you consider the things that we are perfectly happy for the tabloid press to get away with reporting, even when we know it isn't true. And there we go. Even in pre-recorded special editions, I managed to squeeze in a boring preachy part. But the revelation that they were massive, massive fibbers who were lying so much their pants were definitely on fire did nothing to hurt the sales of the New York Sun. If anything, it proved to have been a really clever marketing tactic because people had picked up the New York Sun for the first time, in many cases, to read about the revelations of unicorns and furry bat people cavorting on the moon. And they decided that they'd stick with it. And the New York Sun became the newspaper of choice for many New Yorkers on the back of that story. So not only a hoax that amused most people, but also absolutely spectacularly good marketing. The New York Sun actually continued in publication for more than 100 years after this. It finally ended publication in 1950, when it merged with another New York paper, the New York World Telegram. And that combined newspaper eventually gave it up 17 years later in 1967. So ironically, never actually saw humans walking on the moon. A quick look at Google will tell you that there is in fact still a newspaper called the New York Sun, but that is an entirely separate endeavour which has no connection, except perhaps in spirit, to the original, which was founded in 2002. And this whole thing got me thinking, why is it that we love a hoax so much? I've already mentioned the um, Orson Welles version of H.G. Wells's No Relation, War of the Worlds, that allegedly caused panic on the east coast of the United States back in the 1930s. Uh, in fact, the reports of the confusion and distress caused by that broadcast were very much overrated. It seems fairly clear that, as I said, most people who heard those broadcasts were unperturbed and understood them to be entertainment. And there have been other examples of the same kind of thing happening in much more recent times. Listeners of a certain age may remember Ghostwatch, which was broadcast on Halloween in 1992. Now, I remember watching this and I clearly, clearly should have paid much more attention to the programme's billing in the Radio Times because it was clearly billed as a drama. But I didn't think of it as such. I remember watching it and I thought I was watching a live broadcast. I wasn't. But as a BBC drama, it had been made to look like that. Now, if you're not as old as I am, you may not remember what it was like in the early 90s on TV. Um, Saturday Night TV was... Gladiators on ITV and Noel's House Party on the BBC. And then a little bit later on the BBC, drama with casualty. Honestly, if you replace Noel's House Party with Ant and Dex Saturday Night Takeaway, literally nothing has changed. Then, as now, there were presenters that were ubiquitous and trusted and had gravitas, three of whom were attached to this project, which, as I say, was a pre-recorded drama, but which didn't feel like that. It felt like a live broadcast. And so I sat down with my then girlfriend, now wife, to watch Ghostwatch, thinking it was going to be a kind of let's see if ghosts are real on Halloween kind of special. That's how it felt. And 
you had three presenters in the studio. You had Sarah Green, who was well-liked and well-loved and well-trusted as a former presenter of Blue Peter. She was joined by Mike Smith, who was a Radio 1 DJ and yeah, the, the ubiquitous game show host of the early 90s. He presented loads of stuff, so of course Mike Smith was attached. But the presence that really gave Ghostwatch its authority was undoubtedly Michael Parkinson. I mean, he's still around, and if you watch daytime television, you probably now think of him as that guy that sells the insurance and offers you a free Parker pen just for applying. But back then, again, Parky was at the height of his powers. He was Britain's leading talk show host. His interviews were watched and taken seriously by the nation, to the point that I don't think we have a Michael Parkinson equivalent anymore. I think maybe the closest we've got is probably Graham Norton, but Graham Norton brings an air of campness and comedy to what he's doing. Parky didn't. Parky was absolutely authoritative and absolutely serious. I mean, yes, he had a sense of humour, and if the situation called for it, he was quite happy to have a laugh and a joke with his guest, but he wasn't his show wasn't light entertainment in that sense. And I really do think it was the presence of Michael Parkinson that enabled Ghostwatch to be taken quite as seriously as it was. And the idea was that the main presenting team in the studio would be inviting, you know, having guests on to talk about ghostly stuff and, you know, taking phone calls from viewers who were, you know, going to tell their stories of you know, encounters with spookiness. Again, not actually live, but presented as live. And then there would be outside broadcast sections at an allegedly haunted house somewhere in England, where presenter Craig Charles, who, again, at this point, was riding high, just coming off Red Dwarf, and, you know, hugely popular, hugely cool. And he was going to be with a team of alleged experts in the supernatural, investigating claims of a haunting at this particular house. And the whole thing started off in a fairly benign, fairly vanilla sort of way. But over the night, and I think this thing went on for a couple of hours, things got weirder, and events at the house got weirder. And it was very cleverly done, because they didn't open with wild claims of stuff. That the, the initial tone of the whole thing was, hey, it's Halloween, we're going to do spooky stuff, it's all a bit of a laugh, really, of course we don't believe in it, but we're going to talk to some really wacky people who do. It was that kind of faux-sceptical, faux-cynical, let's have a laugh at all of this kind of approach, which made it all the more convincing when, over the course of the programme, Stranger and stranger things started to happen in the house that the pretend live outside broadcast was coming from. And, you know, we Craig Charles interviewed, you know, the daughter of the house who claimed to, you know, be really scared of this presence and that they'd come to call the the the, the disruptive spirit in the house pipes because when she'd been scared at the noises that were being made, her mum had said, oh, it's just the pipes making strange noises kind of things. And, and as things got weirder and more threatening, started to notice 
strange things happening just on the edge of the camera's vision. So strange spectral looking forms would like appear on the corner of the because obviously it was supposed to be an outside broadcast in somebody's house on somebody's street. And so, yeah, there were sort of people who'd come out to watch the broadcast kind of thing. Or at least there were actors who were behaving as though they were local people who'd come to watch the broadcast being done sort of thing. And as, you know, presenters spoke to people in the, the bystanding crowd, you would see things that would not be remarked on by the presenters, but just weird stuff going on in the background. So that you were left thinking, did I just see that? That was strange. And the, the whole thing led to an air of unease and you know, genuine creepiness. And the presenters all appeared to be freaked out by what was going on. The presenters seemed to be getting nervous, but it was like the metaphor of boiling a frog. Because the temperature raised so gradually, you didn't notice and you just accepted the things that were going on as as the the whole ridiculousness of the hoax escalated and built to an almighty crescendo. And you were left with the feeling that Michael Parkinson may actually have been possessed. And looking back on it, it seems ridiculous that we ever fell for such a thing, particularly because, as I say, it was in the Radio Times as a drama. But somehow the nation did fall for it. In some ways, that has to be a real incredible success. The whole thing was the brainchild of horror writer Stephen Volk, who had originally thought he wanted to do it as a six-part drama. But the producer, Ruth Baumgarten, actually asked him if he would make a 90-minute ghost story for the Screen One series. And this evolved into doing it not as an obvious drama, but as an investigation, a mystery story, pretending it's a live transmission from a haunted house. And Volk, uh, talking to uh, the BBC on the 25th anniversary of Ghostwatch, recalled that the producer, Baumgarten, was really, really excited by that. It was arguably a visionary idea. It was certainly a long, long way ahead, light years ahead of the kind of scripted reality television that we see today, where I, I and I hate to break this to you, but things like the real housewives of wherever the heck they are this week is in fact kind of scripted that these things may have sort of happened. A version of the things you see on screen may sort of have happened. But if it was ever completely real, it's been reshot for the camera. And, you know, fact and fiction is blurred. And we're used to that these days. There was back in the early 90s, though, a lot of head scratching, a lot of a lot of confusion as Baumgarten tried to, pers- to to explain to the higher ups at the BBC exactly what it was they were trying to do. People just didn't get it. They didn't understand why it was written in such a peculiar way. And they couldn't quite grasp how the whole thing was going to work. 
And this is where the genius of the production team came in. They wanted familiar and friendly TV personalities that people would recognise as such to make the thing feel real, to add that layer of reality. They could have done this thing with actors and it would have been perceived as a drama, but they didn't. They brought in Sarah Green, Mike Smith and Michael Parkinson. And it was incredibly groundbreaking TV. Uh, They used an infrared heat vision camera to see the ghostly activity in a way that you may now actually see on the actual ghost hunting shows that you'll find if you go far enough down the freeview box. They pixelated interviewees' faces for anonymity and they shot the whole thing on videotape instead of the 16mm film, which was more commonly used for this kind of thing back in the day, to make it look homemade, to give it that sense of immediacy, to make it feel like real, live television. And it worked a little too well. In Nottingham, the Denham family were sitting down to watch the show together. Um, April and Percy Denham and their two sons, Martin, who was 18, and Gavin, who was 14. And as they were watching, it became clear that Martin, in particular, was getting perhaps a little too much into the show. And this is where the outside broadcast aspect of the, or the pretend outside broadcast aspect of the show became particularly important. Um... We were allegedly invited in to the most haunted house in Britain, where a woman called Pamela Early and her two daughters were being terrorised by poltergeist. We were told, as viewers, that there'd been a team of paranormal researchers at the house investigating for the last 10 months, investigating a ghost that the family called Pipes, because, as I said, uh, it they initially said that oh, it's making it's just the pipes, the water pipes making noises. In the studio, Michael Parkinson was inviting viewers to phone in with their own ghost stories. And again, they used the real number. Uh, you may you may remember it if you're of a certain age. Oh eight one eight double one eight one eight one. That was the number for BBC phone ins at the time. It was used by Crime Watch. It was used by Going Live, the Saturday morning kids show. And The early family, as we kept going back to them, were having an increasingly horrifying evening. Uh, At one point, one of the children appeared to be possessed. Behind the scenes, the Ghostwatch production team were were having the night of their lives. Started off with celebratory drinks. And then the producer, Baumgartner, appeared in the production office to say that the switchboard had been jammed at the BBC. And Volk says, you know, that was a bit of what he describes as a gulp moment. More than 20,000 people had tried to get through at one point during the programme. There were a lot of children who were terrified by the thing. Allegedly, three women went into labour as a result of seeing the thing. A vicar called the BBC to complain that even though he realised it wasn't real... He thought the BBC had genuinely raised demonic creatures. Eventually, the complaints fell into two broad categories. The people who had been genuinely frightened 
and the people who'd been made to feel like mugs. The BBC back then was well trusted. It was the voice of truth. And a lot of people felt that the Ghostwatch show had utterly betrayed that trust. The very opposite of the reaction that the New York Sun got. Back in Nottingham, the Denham family were noticing a change in the behaviour of their son Martin. The radiators in their house had always been very noisy when they were warming up. And suddenly Martin was very nervous about that and he asked to move bedrooms. His mum remembers that he seemed captivated by the talk of ghosts. After five days after the broadcast, Martin Denham took his own life. He left a note addressed to his mum, which said, if there is ghosts, I will now be one and I will always be with you as one. It was not a short leap for the Denham family to make the link to the Ghostwatch programme. And certainly at the time, they felt that the programme was very much to blame for the death of their son. There was actually a judicial review about this um, and an investigation by the Broadcasting Standards Commission, which concluded that the BBC had had a, and I'm quoting now, a duty to do more than simply hint at the deception it was practising on the audience. It also said that there had been, uh, and again, direct quote, deliberate attempt to cultivate a sense of menace. Now, it's difficult, this, because Martin Dannem was a couple of years younger than me. He'd be, what, 50-ish now? Late 40s, early 50s now, if he'd lived. And that's a huge, huge, huge waste. I do wonder, though, what changed between 1835 and 1992? In 1992, you know, if we put the, the, the terrible loss of Martin Denham to one side, because, I mean, what can you say about that? That's a, a, an incredible tragedy on every level. Most of the complaints, most of the reaction, seem to be anger at having been conned. In 1835, people enjoyed the joke, mostly. And I wonder, I wonder why that change has happened over that intervening hundred and however many years. The BBC has kind of distanced itself from Ghostwatch after all those complaints and the judicial review and the inquiry and the negative press. Um, The writer Volk says that he would have liked to have explained his intentions as a writer much sooner than he was actually allowed to. He eventually explained himself if that's that's not really the right term for this but he eventually explained what he would what he'd been trying to achieve um when in 2002 uh, the bbc released ghostwatch as a dvd and he thinks that it would have been better if the bbc hadn't shut the thing down so completely in the intervening years so there could have been a conversation about it but when that dvd was released there was a lot of positive reaction. People in their 20s who'd been sort of 10, 11, 12 when it had first been released uh, started to discuss their memories of watching that programme. And it's clear that a lot of people actually did enjoy it. I did. I was what? I was 19, maybe 20. No, 19. I was nearly 20 when it came out. I enjoyed it. 
And I think perhaps the Ghostwatch hoax in the end ends up in roughly the same place as the great moon hoax of 1835 in that with the passage of time, people will look back on them as curios and wonder how on earth people fell for it. But people did. As one of the people who fell for it, I am happy to confirm that it was not stupidity. It was something else. It's the way hoaxes like this make you reevaluate what you think is real that has an impact, I think. The BBC almost certainly would never do anything similar to this again. I think a lot of people high up in the BBC were quite scarred by the reaction that they got. And in any case, I think most TV stations now would worry about the potential negative consequences of such a thing. I mean, they don't even do April Fool's jokes on the BBC anymore. So the idea that they would prank an entire nation for 90 minutes on primetime is just not something I can see happening in the in the near future. And you know what? I think that this is perhaps a bit of a shame. I think hoaxes that are deliberately done as hoaxes not to fool people, but as a bit of fun, like the Great Moon hoax, like Ghostwatch, I think they actually serve quite a valuable purpose. You see, we live in a world of fakeness and fake news, a world where people can talk with a straight face about having alternative facts, a world where people who are in positions which demand that they be trustworthy will look you straight in the eye and lie to you. That's the world we live in now. That's not even a political point. This is not even the boring preachy part. This is something we're going to increasingly have to contend with. Deep fakes are becoming increasingly difficult to spot. So it will not be long before we genuinely see video of a world leader doing something utterly despicable. And we will genuinely not be able to be sure as viewers, whether it's real or not. And as we go into this world, it seems to me that we need more than ever to be prepared to spot the ridiculous. I was talking to somebody about the ghost watch thing, uh, just in the sort of preparation for this, really. And they were very firmly of the opinion that people wouldn't fall for it today. But I don't see how that any anyone could be that sure about that. In a world where people believe in QAnon, a world where flat earthers are increasing in number, a world where people will earnestly tell you not only that man never landed on the moon, but that they, whoever they are, are faking it in order somehow to control us. Even during the pandemic, we had people who earnestly believed that the vaccine was some kind of global government plot to inject us with microchips and controllers, or that the vaccines had been deliberately created to kill people. And it would be arrogant in the extreme to label all of the people who had those concerns as stupid. As geeks, one of the things I think we can pride ourselves on is our commitment to critical thinking. I would hope that most of you guys listening to this 
would never fall for Ghostwatch or The Great Moon Hoax. I like to think that I wouldn't. And I remember back in 1992 spending most of that 90 minute programme thinking, this isn't real, is it? And I don't think I ever believed it was. But I did find myself asking the question. The very fact I was saying, this isn't real, is it? Suggests that I was prepared to believe that it was. And that's the lesson from these hoaxes. The Great Moon Hoax, Orson Welles's War of the Worlds, Ghostwatch, the infamous Spaghetti Trees, all of these things. Whenever somebody comes to you with a conspiracy theory that they are utterly convinced is correct. And whenever you come across a conspiracy theory that is completely convincing, just remember that for one evening on Halloween night in 1992, the entire nation believed in ghosts. For a couple of weeks in the summer of 1835, people believed that there were humanoid bats riding unicorns on the moon. And for one evening in the 1930s, at least some people on the American East Coast thought that the Martians were coming for them. These people were not stupid. These people were not gullible. Actually, that's not true. These people were gullible, but no more gullible than everybody else. So we need to keep reminding ourselves of this because we are just as vulnerable to falling for the nonsense as anybody else. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Okay, so Reggie from the future here. So since the Eisner Awards have been announced, I figured it would be a good thing to do to uh, spend the 10 minutes that we've got just running through them quickly. I don't think we've got time for an in-depth sort of thing, but a quick run through is probably in order. What has happened with the Eisners? Do I need to explain what the Eisners are? I don't think I do at this point, do I? Surely. If we call them the Comics Oscars, that'll probably do. I was quite excited by some of the Eisner nominations. I think it was worth pointing out that um, Bradford's own Zoe Thorogood was nominated for about a million and a half of them. Slight exaggeration, but not that much. Uh, and there were a couple of others that I was really excited about. And generally speaking, I'm very happy with the winnies. So, um, we talked when they, the, the nominations were announced about the uh, best short story. Uh, that was won by the story I wanted to win. Uh, Finding Batman by Kevin Conroy and Jay Bone, which was published in DC Pride 2022. That's last year's DC Pride anthology. And I wanted it to win, partly because obviously we lost Kevin Conroy last year, which was a real blow to all of us that will forever regard him as the voice of Batman. But also because it was an incredibly moving story. Uh, if you can hear crunching, by the way, I should point out, I am not actually recording at home or in a studio. I am, in fact, walking down a gravel path as I record this. Uh, you may also hear other people, traffic noise and uh, birdsong. So, yeah, um, bear with me. These are unusual recording circumstances. Uh, so, yeah, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, Kevin Conroy. His story, Finding Batman, was incredibly moving. I didn't actually know until I read it that Kevin Conroy was gay. And yeah, I don't care. But clearly, 
uh, it was a thing that affected his life greatly. And the Finding Batman was the story of how he found himself in a very real sense. And that was quite deeply affecting. First of all, because honestly, in this day and age, the idea that anybody would have their life negatively affected by their sexuality, by other people's judgment of them because of their sexuality, is incomprehensible to me and it's appalling to me that that is still, in fact, a thing. Uh, I have to accept that it is. And, you know, I I, I found the, the story affecting for that reason, but also because Conroy found himself um, through Batman, through being Batman, I guess. And Batman, in an entirely and completely less traumatic way, um, Batman is incredibly important to the way I found out who I was and who I am and what I'm about. And so... I found, I found the story deeply affecting for that reason too. And for that reason, I was very, very happy that Kevin Conroy won. Um, then we have uh, the best single issue one-shot, and it's another Batman win. And when you're as big a Batman fan as I am, you, you tend to think of that as an unequivocally good, unequivocally even a good thing. Uh, the winner was Batman One Bad Day, The Riddler, which is a one-shot by Tom King, and Mitch Gerrards and the King and Gerrards partnership uh, Tom King writing Mitch Gerrards drawing is one of those double acts that just works and so you know I was there were other good good stories on the list as well but I think the right one won now the best continuing series again really really strong the Department of Truth by James Tinney and the fourth and Martin Simmons was up there. Philadelphia, perhaps the best vampire story I've read in decades, uh, by um, Rodney Barnes and Jason Sean Alexander from Image. That was up there. Uh, James Tinian's Nice House on the Lake, uh, with uh, illustrated by Alvaro Martinez Bueno. Uh, that was up there. Chip Zdarsky, uh, Maro uh, Chiquetto and Rafael De La Torre's Daredevil. That was up there. She-Hook by Rainbow Rowell, uh, Roger Antonio, uh, Luca Moresa and Takeshi Miyazawa. That was up there too. The winner, uh, and I think, again, rightly so, uh, all of the competition in this category was deserving, but the winner was Nightwing by Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo. Uh, And I think Nightwing is probably the best superhero book on the shelves right now. It's certainly without question, the best thing that DC is doing and has done for some time. So, a worthy winner. Uh, very, very happy with that one. Um, now, the best limited series, again, really pleased with this result. There was some really good stuff that I think we have to call runners-up at this point. Uh, Animal Castle by uh, Xavier Dorison and Felix Delap from Ablaze. Uh, the Batman One Bad Day sequence, um, edited by uh, Dave Vilgotz and Jessica Burberry. Uh, that was up there. Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham, uh, which 
Honestly, we've been waiting for for knocking on 30 years now, so that was long awaited. And Super, uh, Superman Space Age by Mark Russell, Michael Allred and Laura Allred. Uh, that was also that all brilliant stuff. Uh, the winner, though, was uh, Human Target by Tom King and Greg Smallwood. Uh, Tom King, one of the best writers DC has at the moment. Human Target was one hell of a series. So really, really happy with that. Uh, and really happy also with best new series uh, which was won by uh, Public Domain by Chip Zdarsky uh, now this was a story about comics it was a comic about comics uh, and about creators rights and about family dynamics and it was so much more exciting than that just sounded uh, so yeah really pleased with that too I'm gonna skip a couple of categories because they're categories that I don't know anything about um, Best publication for teens was a whole lot of books I haven't read, uh, including Heartstopper, which I know is very popular. Uh, I've got fairly close ties now with the school library at King James School in Nairsborough, and uh, just talking to some kids when I was there a, a, few, a couple of months ago, uh, they love Heartstopper. It's a great book. I, I, I only haven't read it because I haven't got round to reading it yet. Uh, volume 4 of that was up for Best Publication for Teens. That category was actually won by Do a Parabomb by Daniel Warren Johnson, who is a tour de force uh, as a writer-artist. This was a wrestling comic, but a really good wrestling comic. Uh, And, yeah, I've loved everything that Warren Johnson has done, so I'm happy with that too. Uh, Best Anthology I'm going to skip, because, again, it's a bunch of books I haven't read. Uh, best reality-based work. There was a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, it was won in the end by Flung Out of Space by Grace Ellis and Hannah Templer, which I have not read, so I can't comment on. Um, and the same is true of Best Graphic Memoir, although Ducks, which won, Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands by Kate Beaton, uh, from Dawn, Drawn and Quarterly, has been recommended to me by almost everyone I know. So I've not been able to get it in stock at Destys yet, but it's on the list of things that I'm hoping to get in. Possibly by the time I'm actually back at Destie's from this little travelling thing that I'm doing, uh, it, we may have it. So watch this space. I'm going to skip the graphic album categories again because they are things that I haven't read, so I can't really comment. But we have uh, the best adaptation of another medium, which is always a, 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 con- a close contest. I voted for Rain. Uh, adapted by uh, David M. Boer and Zoe Thurgood from uh, Joe Hill's work. Um, uh, largely because this, this is one of the gazillion things that Zoe Thurgood was nominated for. And I adore Zoe Thurgood, which is why I nominated it. Uh, or why I voted for it, I don't get to nominate. It didn't win. Uh, the winner was actually Chivalry, uh, adapted by Colleen Duran, but from Neil Gaiman's short story. I can't argue with that. It's one hell of a book. Uh, you can come into Destiny's and check it out if you like. It's a really strong adaptation of a really good story. So, uh, yeah, not the one I voted for. Not at all sad uh, that it won. Now, the next category that I think I really cared about was um, Best Writer. Now, again, this is an incredibly strong category. Uh, Grace Ellis, uh, Tom King, who's already an Eisner winner uh, this year. Chip Zdarsky, who, again, already an Eisner winner this year. Really strong field. So 
when I tell you that the winner was James Tinian IV, you understand just how good he actually is. So, what did James Tinian IV win for? Uh, well, the list here says uh, House of Slaughter, Something is Killing the Children, Wind, The Nice House on the Lake, The Sandman Universe, Nightmare Country, The Closet, and The Department of Truth. That's not all he's done this year. That's probably the best-selling stuff. And it's all amazing. I mean, you will recognise some of those titles from previous nominations this year. He's the guy I voted for, and he won. Anyone in that category would have been a worthy winner, though, which is one of my issues with awards, really. Sometimes, actually, everybody does deserve the trophy. And I think the next category, Best Writer Artist, that's also true. Uh, Sarah Anderson was nominated for Cryptic Club. Uh, Espe was nominated for The Pass, uh, which I've only just read, but still, you know, very, very, very good stuff. Um, Junji Ito uh, for Black Paradox, The Liminal Zone from Viz Media uh, was also nominated, as was Zoe Thorogood, who was nominated in this, and as I said, a gazillion other categories. She was nominated for It's Lonely in the, at the Centre of the Earth, which is one of the most powerful comics I've read in the last five years. She's who I voted for, she didn't win. Kate Beaton won for Ducks, Two Years in the Old Sands, which, again, I haven't read. So I'm going to assume that that is just an astounding piece of work. Uh, then we have Best Penciler Inca, or Best Penciler Inca Team. Uh, a bunch of people rec- nominated here, again, that I cannot argue with. Uh, Jason Sean Alexander was nominated for Philadelphia and uh, Nita Hall's Nightmare blog. Uh, Alvaro Martinez Bueno was nominated for The Nice House on the Lake. Sean Phillips was nominated for Follow Me Down and The Ghost in You. And Bruno Redondo was nominated for Nightwing. Uh, It was actually won by Greg Smallwood for The Human Target, and I I really can't argue with that. I voted for Bruno Redondo, but, yeah, what can I say? Everyone there was a worthy winner. Uh, The same is true of the Best Painter and Multimedia Artist for Interior Art. Lee Bayemo was nominated again for A Vicious Circle. Uh, Felix Dellop was nominated for Admiral Castle, again. Uh, Daria Schmidt was nominated for The Monstrous Dreams of Mr. Providence. Zoe Thorogood, again, was nominated for Rain. And Thomas Rudworth uh, was also nominated for Francis Robot, The Tale of a Fastidious Feral. Now, that was the controversial one. You'll be pleased to know it didn't win. I was very pleased it didn't win. The winner was, in fact, Sana Takeda, uh, The Night Eaters, She Eats the Night, which I have not read and Monstrous, which I have. Monstrous is beautiful, and I think uh, Sanana Takeda is a worthy, worthy winner there. Bruno Redondo did win, however, for Best Cover Artist for Nightwing. Uh, The Nightwing covers are a thing of utter legend right now. Uh, He beat out Zoe Thorogood for Joe Hill's Reign. Um, This is the only category Thorogood was nominated in that I didn't vote for her in. Uh, I voted for Bruno Redondo here, so please do one. Um, Jen Bartel, I think, deserves an honourable mention also for She-Hulk. The She-Hulk covers have been utterly beautiful. Um, I think the right guy won in the end. I would have been very happy if Zoe Thorogood had won that. She didn't. I think that's a shame. She hasn't won in several categories now that I think she would have been a worthy winner in. But... At the same time, I don't argue with the winners that did win. So, you know, again, it's one of those where almost everyone nominated 
would have deserved the trophy here. Uh, best colouring uh, went to Jordi Bellier for the nice house on the lake. Suicide Squad, uh, Ant-Man, Miracle Man uh, by Game and Buckingham. The other nominees in that category too would have been great. Jacob Phillips was in there. Uh, a couple of others as well who would have been worthy. But I think Jordi Bellier is a good winner in that category. Um, best lettering was won by Stan Sakai for Yosagi Yajimbo. I voted for Nate Picos just because Picos is probably just the letterer's letterer. Um, if you're not familiar with Picos's work, just go to blambot.com. Everything there is a Picos design. He is the king of letterers. I'm frankly actually genuinely surprised he didn't win. But all the other letterers nominated were also great. Sakai is a legend. So, yeah, okay. Of the rest of it, the only other winner that I want to to flag up is... um, Well, there are two. Uh, The best digital comic uh, was a whole bunch of stuff that I hadn't read until the winner was published in print, on actual paper. Uh, That's Barnstormers by Scott Snyder and Tula Lote. Uh, that was published originally as a Comixology original. It is now out on paper. Uh, issue 1 is out now. Issue 2 is coming out shortly uh, from Dark Horse. Uh, Tula Lote is a local artist. Uh, she's based in Leeds and is the founder of the Thought Bubble Festival. Obviously, I voted for her because Barnstormers is actually just a stunning thing to look at. Uh, I recommend, if you haven't checked it out on, on Comixology, I recommend you check it out in print. It really is a brilliant, brilliant looking thing. The final thing I want to look at... Oh, I'm going to talk about the Hall of Fame vote in a future episode, so I'll, I'll skip the Hall of Fame, except to say that I thoroughly approve. Um, I just want to point out that Zoe Thorogood did win Best Newcomer. Now, I don't think of Thorogood as a newcomer at this point. It's worth pointing out she is only 25 and she has only been around for a couple of years. So in terms of the Eisners, she totally is a newcomer. I just don't think of her as that. And I think that is perhaps a testimony to just the impact that Thorogood's work has made. She is an astounding talent. I can't think of a better person who's come on the scene since Thorogood. I can't think of many who've come on the scene in the last five years before Thorogood. So, yeah, okay. I, I don't think that's the last item that she's going to win. Um, and so, yeah, she can now say she's a nice winner. I guess for now, that'll do. As I say, definitely not going to be the last Eisner that she wins. And uh, I guess, yeah. We, we can be happy with that. Uh, and looking at the timer on my little thingamajig here, we are very much out of time, to the point that I've got to find at least eight minutes to cut out what I've already recorded. I guess we will therefore leave it there. What remains? I guess just to let you know that uh, Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production and proudly recorded mostly in Yorkshire. But actually this last few minutes or so recorded in f- by the sphinxes that stand in front of what used to be the crystal palace but is now a massive tv mast 
Um, and this is Reggie from, well, still your past, but very much the future from where everything else in this show was recorded. Uh, and we'll leave it there. We'll be back next week. I've got no idea what's in next week's episode. It may be a pre-recorded thing leaning very, very heavily on um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It may actually just be a regular episode because I will be back in Harrogate by then. Uh, so, I don't know. We'll see, I guess. And so we do. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. And above all else, stay geeky.